Hello and welcome back to a second chance. My name is Philip Jones. And I am Tafaro Cook. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a two-time kidney transplant recipient and the founder of Kidney Care Coaches, where we coach stage three to stage five kidney disease patients. Always good to have you, Mr. Cook. Uh, today we have a very special guest, Ms. Alexandra Harrison Flaxman, who was gracious enough to come on our show today to tell her story uh, being a transplant patient, and uh, we greatly appreciate you coming on today. How are you today? I'm doing good. It's Sunday. Can't complain. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, you know, we get straight to the story, so Alex, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you. Um, and uh, feel free to, you know, ask questions um, as you see fit. Um, so uh, I'm a two-time kidney transplant recipient, and I was born with uh, what's called Botter syndrome. Um, my mom, actually, my parents found out um, while she was in her second trimester that I was going to have some health issues. Um, so when I was born, I was immediately taken into surgery and had one of my native kidneys removed. Um, and my kidney that I had left only had about 30% function. And due to, you know, just a very strict diet and a very strict routine, um, that kidney got me until I was eight years old, um, which is when I did end up going on uh, dialysis for the first time. Um, and looking back, dialysis has thankfully come a long way, but also not come a long way at the same time. Um, as an eight-year-old, I was doing in-center hemo um, at the hospital because uh, they didn't have outpatient dialysis for kids. Um, so my first treatment, I remember that my mom picked me up from school early and we went to dialysis and I had my Little Mermaid lunchbox and they sat me down in the chair and they were, you know, getting me all hooked up. Um, I had a chest cath. And I'm finally settled and I'm like this tiny little eight-year-old sitting in this huge dialysis chair and I'm kind of looking around and I feel like most kids, when you ask them to talk about their childhood, they usually don't remember a lot because, you know, we're young. Um, but I vividly remember looking to my left and my right and seeing two um, inmates who were also getting their dialysis at the same time because, you know, they need it too and they were uh, being guarded by armed guards and shackles and the whole nine yards, but getting their dialysis. And I remember my mom being mortified um, and thinking this is not okay. Um, but that was my first uh, dialysis experience. Um, and I continued to do dialysis until I was 10 years old, um, which is when I got my first kidney transplant. Um, it was from a deceased donor um, a girl who had passed away locally um, in a car accident. And it was kind of a tricky situation. Um, the kidney happened in April, uh, kidney transplant happened in April of the late 90s. And my mom was actually already scheduled to uh, be my living donor. Um, her and my dad had both gone through testing um, and they were both matches, um, but my mom was just decided that she, she was the better one. Um, and so when we got the call, they were like, you know, we know that you have a living donor, but we also have this, you know, deceased donor. It's, it's your guys' decision. What do you want to do? And we ended up deciding to take the deceased donor so that my mom could, you know, be my caretaker. Um, and also because I was only 10 years old, we, you know, assumed that 
eventually I would need another transplant and we would save her for then. So we went ahead with the deceased donor um, and I got my kidney um, when I was 10 and had a pretty good first few years, um, healthy, doing, you know, out school activities, trying to be the most normal teenager possible. But then, you know, I was a teenager and did not make the best decisions um, with my care and ended up losing the kidney when I was 18 because I was non-compliant and did not want to take my medication like, you know, nobody else had to do that I knew. I didn't know any other kidney transplant recipients. I didn't have, you know, the access to peers like I do now. You know, I didn't know people like the two of you that had gone through similar situations. Um, so I really was just trying to fit in. And, you know, I think any teenager goes through a lot on an ideal regular basis, let alone you add in this chronic illness and this, you know, major thing that you have to take care of. And it's just, you know, that much harder. So I ended up back on dialysis at 18 and I was miserable and I was angry at everybody. And I didn't want to, you know, admit that it was my fault that I had ended up back in that situation. Um, and at the time um, we were living in Dallas, outside of Dallas, Texas, um, and I'm originally from Southern California and my parents saw that I was kind of spiraling and, you know, really not in a good place. So they sent me back to Southern California to live with a family member to try and get back on track, find something to look forward to, try and, you know, be better than I was being while, you know, going back on dialysis at 18 while all my friends are going away to school and, you know, living their lives. So I came back to Southern California. Um, and was still very angry, um, very depressed, struggled with um, depression a lot, did not want to admit to anyone that it had been my fault that I'd lost the kidney, let alone myself, um, and just really wasn't in a good place. And I say that because I, I think so today is also um, World Mental Health Day, and I feel like it's very important to talk about the mental health aspect of transplant um, and living with a, a chronic illness um, because it's hard. And I feel like the resources that we have available to us now did not exist when I was going through all of this. So I very much kept it to myself because I was ashamed. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier before, you know, the show went live about how being on dialysis, you can kind of become like in your comfort zone and you don't want to deal with change and you don't want to deal with what you don't know of the transplant journey. And even though I had been through the transplant journey before, I was now looking at it as I didn't deserve to go through it a second time because of messing up the first time. Um, and that was a really hard place to be because as you know most transplant recipients know you have to go through a very hard workup process before you are deemed eligible to get a transplant and part of that is you know a self a psych evaluation and you know your mental health and like how are you doing and i knew that they were going to ask me are you going to take care of it you know do you recognize that you'd messed up the first time and i knew that i wasn't prepared to take ownership of that. 
Um, so I spent a lot longer on dialysis the second time around than I probably would have if I had, you know, stepped up and, you know, fought a little bit harder. Um, but also while I was on dialysis that second time, I had another really unfortunate experience where my dialysis center was not very patient focused. Um, and so I had to deal with some situations that I look back on now and I think I'm glad that I was strong enough to stand up for myself. But at the time I was probably terrified doing it. Um, and I ended up changing nephrologists, changing um, transplant um, centers, changing dialysis centers, like changing everything to find a place that I felt comfortable and that would listen to me and, you know, my worries and my point of view, because after all, I am the patient and, you know, I know my own body and I know me better than anybody. Um, and I don't think anyone will advocate for you as hard as you'll advocate for yourself. So that was kind of a turning point for me to get back on track and take ownership and start looking down, you know, that road to a second transplant. Um, it's also when I got a lot more involved in the patient community and trying to be that peer mentor that I didn't have. Um, and even if it was, you know, learning from my mistakes and, you know, learning what not to do or feeling less alone or knowing that, you know, it's okay to feel the way that you're feeling and to go through what you're going through because I've done it and I'm, you know, trying to make it out better on the other end. I felt it was really important for me in that situation to give back to others. Um, I finally decided that I was prepared for that second transplant. You know, I had accepted that I messed up, but I was not that same, you know, 16 year old that I was when I had made those mistakes, um, that I had grown, that I was a better person, that I, you know, was ready to deal with that responsibility. It's a lot to deal with that when you're a kid. And I think I was just too hard on myself and did not let myself have a little bit of leeway um, for making those mistakes. So when I decided that I was ready for that second transplant and I was being evaluated and going through, you know, the rigorous workup, checking all my labs, doing, you know, all of the things that you need to do, um, they ended up finding out that I had had cancer. So I had to go through that treatment and um, have uh, my thyroid and partial lymph nodes removed and went through radiation and a couple rounds of chemo just to make sure like a very aggressive treatment for what it was. But knowing that, you know, I'm about to be immunosuppressed um, and making sure that we didn't leave any room for air. So after I went through that treatment, um, a lot of the transplant transplant centers decided that I wasn't worth the risk to transplant. Um, I had also developed a lot of antibodies. I was highly sensitized. My parents were no longer matches. Um, I have a younger brother who was a match, but he was um, playing uh, college sports. And so I didn't want to, you know, take him out of that um, at the time. But a lot of transplant centers were like, nope, you've just got to accept that you're going to be on dialysis for a while, and that's just how it's going to be. So I ended up finding a new transplant center and went through a lot of desensitization, um, plasmapheresis, IVIG, uh, the whole nine yards trying to get me ready for transplant. They had decided that instead of... Um, making me inactive on the list um, for three years, which is 
sometimes a standard protocol for patients that um, have cancer before transplant, that they would reevaluate my case in a year. So I'd found out that I had cancer in November, December of 2011, and I went through all of the treatments and surgery and finished all of that in February of 2012. So in February of 2013, um, I did that full body workup, full body scan, everything came back clear. They deemed me cancer free um, and they reactivated me on the list. And um, I got a couple calls to come in and ended up not you know, working out because that final cross match came back, um, you know, showing that I still had antibodies to that donor kidney um, and got sent home. And for anybody that's been through that, it is very hard on the mental state because you try not to get your hopes up when you get that call, but you can't not get your hopes up because you're so excited that your whole life is about to change and that you're about to have this freedom that you didn't have. Um, and so I, you know, had a moment where I thought maybe I'm not going to get a second transplant. Maybe I am just going to stay on dialysis and, you know, this is my fate. I was working. I was trying to go back to school. I was in a relationship. I thought, you know, if this is what my life looks like, that's okay. I'm young. I was 26 at the time. Mm. Uh, I was like, I can, I can just deal with this. Like I made my bed and now I got to sleep in it. So now fast forward and it's May of 2013 and I'm prepping for an event that I'm on the committee for and I'm in a hotel um, that has terrible cell reception and I'm trying to put goodie bags together and my mom who does not live in Southern California happens to be in town because she's here for this event that I've helped coordinate and um I check my phone and all of a sudden I realize I have like four missed calls from the transplant center and several voicemails. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. But I knew that I had done labs the week before just to, you know, kind of monitor everything. So I'm thinking, okay, I probably have like a bladder infection or my white count is high or my potassium is high, something they're just calling to like check in. So I don't really think anything of it. So then I go and I find reception and I listen to the voicemail and it's the transplant coordinator. And she's like, hi, Alexandra, um, you know, this is so-and-so from the transplant center. I really, I really need you to call me back. So I'm like, oh man, this must be like really not good. But thinking that they're calling me for a kidney is not really crossing my mind at that time. Cause I'm like, I just got reactivated. There's no way that they're already calling. So I go and I try to find service and I make the call and of course it goes to voicemail and I'm like, hi, this is Alexandra. We're turning your call. Please give me a call back. So I'm standing in the middle of the lobby because it's the only place that has reception. And I'm assuming that if it's really that important that they'll call me back pretty quickly. So I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And they finally call me back. And sure enough, they're like, you know, hi, Alexandra, we're calling to tell you that we have a kidney for you. And my first reaction was call the next person. And I remember the woman being like, excuse me, did you not hear what we just said? And I was like, yes, but I think you should just call the next person. Like I don't have the emotional capacity to come in right now and get sent home. 
So I go back to like stuffing goodie bags. I don't say anything to my mom or anybody around me. I just go back to business as usual. And then I get another call and it's my transplant coordinator who is still in my life today, was at my wedding, is honestly one of the main reasons that I'm still here to tell this story. And she's like, are you insane? It's, you know, it's a perfect match kidney. Please like just, I know that it's been a rough road, but just, just please come in. So now I'm kind of letting my guard down and like the emotions are flooding and I just break down and I'm like crying in this hotel lobby in the fetal position on the floor. And everyone probably thinks that I'm insane. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll come in. So now my mom comes out because she's looking for me and she comes out to find her daughter in the fetal position of a hotel lobby crying. And all I can do is muster the word kidney and put like a thumbs up in the air. So now she's crying on the floor of a hotel lobby and we're just like hugging each other and me being the person that I am. And I really hate to let people down, especially when I, you know, I make a commitment. I'm, I feel bad that I now have to leave this event that I've helped coordinate. And I'm like, sorry, I have to go get a kidney transplant. And of course they're like, Oh no, it's fine. Like worry about you. And I'm like, I know, but I feel bad because I said I would do this. And, but I, ha- I don't have to be there till tomorrow so I can stay the rest of the day. And they're like, no, 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 go, go, go worry about you. Um, so we go home and, uh, we're, you know, we're getting ready and I don't know if anyone else does this, but I ever since I, you know, got that reactivation and knew that I could get called at any moment. I had like a transplant go bag ready. So like pregnant women have their like pregnancy bag ready to go to the hospital. I had my transplant bag ready to go to the hospital. And I highly recommend that as a tip to anyone waiting, because I feel like when you're in that moment, you're not thinking about what do I need to bring with me? And just having it ready was so much better. So it's like, you don't have to wonder, like, did I bring my phone charger? Do I have like a stuffed animal that I bring with me everywhere I go, even though I'm 35 years old, because he's been with me through everything. So like he was in the bag, you know, comfortable pajamas, because we all know the hospital gowns are the worst, you know, warm socks. Horrible. Um, (laughs) Horrible. So just having that bag, is like one less thing you have to worry about. Your your current med list, like all of that. But for some reason, even though I've been through this drill before, I'm thinking like this one's going to be different. And I don't want my mom to have to be waiting by herself. But my dad and my brother are in like another state halfway across the country. I don't want them to fly all the way out in case it doesn't work out. So I call my best friend who lives nearby and I'm like, hey, they called me with a kidney. Can you please come with us so that if they do take me away, my mom doesn't have to be waiting by herself. And if God forbid something terrible happens, she doesn't have to be alone. So of course she's like, absolutely. What time do we need to be there? And I'm like, "Mm, we have to be there at five o'clock in the morning and it's in LA. So you probably need to just come up now. So she comes up and we all go to the hospital together the next day. We get checked in, IVs are in, they're doing labs. um, And we're just waiting for the donor kidney to show up. It was coming from outside of um, Omaha, Nebraska. And the surgeon comes in and he is very dry as most surgeons are. He has no time for nonsense. And he comes in and he's like, this might happen. 
it might not happen, but no matter what, you're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And then he just walks out. I'm like, okay. And they come back in later. It's really late at night now. And it is May 17th, 2013. And they're like, look, we're still waiting on the donor kidney. We still need to do the final cross match. It's not looking like surgery is going to happen until tomorrow morning. Why don't your mom and friend go home and, you know, we'll call if anything changes. So they leave. They go to stay at a hotel nearby. And around four o'clock in the morning, the nurse comes back in. She's like, all right, it's time to go. And I'm like, uh, my mom is not here. My friend is not here. Like, I want to at least say, you know, goodbye or like have, you know, give them a hug before you guys take me away. So I call them and they rush back over to the hospital and we're waiting in pre-op. And we're the only ones in pre-op that early in the morning. And it's um, one of the nurses and they uh, anesthesiologist is in there waiting with us too. And we're waiting on that final cross match, like the, the tell all, like it's either going to happen or it's not. And I'm fully prepared to go home. I'm like, this is a waste of time. Can we just, can we just go? I'm tired. I haven't slept in two days since you guys called me. Can we just, can we just please be done with this? And the phone rings and all the anesthesiologist says is it's a go. And I, cry hysterically my mom's crying my best friend's in the corner she unzips this hoodie that she has on and she's wearing a t-shirt underneath that says hello kidney and we're all breaking down hysterically and they took me away to surgery and i came out with my kidney on may 18th 2013 his name is nemo because he is my lucky finn and it's been a mostly smooth journey since then but not perfect um so i'm almost nine years out and after i got that second transplant i truly made it my mission to help others and not just advocate for myself but advocate for others that don't have a voice or haven't found their voice yet um and just trying to be the best role model that I can be. Um, and also letting people know that, you know, it's okay if you make mistakes, nobody's perfect. This is a very hard journey. There is no playbook. No one story is the same. No one goes through the same, you know, hurdles. Yes, they can be similar, but everything is, you know, very different depending on your circumstance, but just knowing that you can have someone to talk to and to hear their story and to hear that they've made it out alive on the other end, I think really helps um, provide hope and also just makes people feel a little bit less lonely and frustrated um, if they're going through a rough time. And I just talked really fast and gave a lot of information. So if you guys have questions. That, that's an awesome story. But uh, I always, um, let me ask you something. Um, you said you had 30% kidney when you were a baby do you remember um like up to eight years old when you started dialysis i mean like how was like how was your childhood yeah um so i got i'm first of all i was very lucky like i have an amazing support system like my parents were very involved they sought out the best care possible so i'm very fortunate in that regard um, to the point that the first two OBGYNs that my mom had, 
um, told her to abort the pregnancy, that I would not live to have a life, and that if I did, I would probably be paralyzed um, and maybe not survive past, you know, the age of two or three. Fortunately, they are strong people, which I attribute where I get my personality from. And they were like, yeah, no, we're going to go find somebody else. And they found a specialist that was like, yeah, this is going to be very hard, but we'll make it work. Um, so with that being said, they raised me in a way that I always knew my situation was different, but they never wanted me to feel different or like there wasn't something that I couldn't do unless I really shouldn't be doing that. Right. So like I've never played contact sports, but like I did dance, I did cheerleading, I did music, I took piano lessons. Um, but I do remember, and like my mom was just cleaning out like a bunch of storage recently. And so she was like sending me pictures of like, you know, school photos when you're little and like class photos. And I was definitely substantially smaller than everybody else, both like tiny and very short. Like I'm barely five feet today. And I feel like Zoom and all these virtual meetings are very deceptive. Like you meet someone, you're like, I have no idea that that is how short you are. Um, but I was always very small. So I, I feel like I knew that, but it wasn't like a problem. Um, I also had a very weird diet. I remember my mom used to make me eat Cheerios with bran sprinkled on them. And I wasn't allowed to have like real dairy. So mm. I would, I don't even think they make this anymore, but it was like mocha mix. And it's like a soy based okay. milk. Um, and I remember <laughs> hating that and thinking like, why can't I have peanut butter and jelly like the other kids? Like, why do I have to eat this? Um, so I, I do remember that. And obviously, you know, there was a lot of doctor visits and I missed a lot of school. Um, but all in all, like I look back on my childhood pretty fondly. Like I don't, I don't think I missed out. I, but I do know that it was different. Yeah, you sound like you have, you know, having a great personality at that age uh, just carried you through. You know, nobody even noticed. I don't that. know if my parents would agree with that, but. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's awesome. Um, and so, like you said, I, I never I never forget my first dialysis treatment also. And that's and uh, <clears throat> mine was kind of sort of like that, too. But I'm not going to go in there. But seeing those inmates and never, you know, never leave your. You know, it's like an imprint, you know, first time doing dialysis and seeing something like that. That's one thing you'll never forget. And I, I, I can definitely understand that. And uh, another question I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> when you when you were non-compliant, because I had an episode of that with my first kidney transplant also. Um, you turned 18. Was you just starting college then? Or? Yeah. Um, so. And when I say non-compliant, like I feel like it wasn't like I was defiant or like fighting or arguing with my care team. It was truly like, I would just like miss doses, not intentionally. Like I would forget. And later I would think, Oh crap, I didn't take my meds, but I wouldn't tell anybody. And like, it would happen more frequently and I wouldn't feel any different. So I'm right. like, Oh, this is, okay like i'm invincible and so it wasn't like i consciously made the decision to just stop taking care of myself and i feel like that's not something that i realized until actually 
recently telling my story more like people were like so you just like didn't take care of yourself and I was like well no it was a, it was a slow process to where I thought maybe I don't need to take this medication and obviously now I look back and I'm like wow that was really stupid but that was almost 20 years ago and I've you know I've grown and you know when you're 16 17 18 you think you know everything right. um so I can really relate to that because that's how mine was where you know, I, I missed for the first time and was like, oh, I, I still feel fine. Oh, okay. And then I didn't, I wasn't on top of it. Like, like you said, like now they're in my car. Mm-hmm. My wife has my medicines also. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm only like ritual. And that's how, you know, and I, I, I've told the same story, but I was like, it wasn't like, okay, don't worry about medicines anymore. It was right. a lack of, lack of being impromptu with my medicines. Like, okay, I'm on it. And I mm-hmm. agree with you on there. But let me ask you something. Um, again, uh, you said you had to do a plasmapheresis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I uh, you got to see my story. I did quite a bit of plasmapheresis also. And you said you were sensitive, and I get that. So how many times did you have to do plasmapheresis? Um, I'm trying to think. So I had to do like two separate rounds. So I was going through that whole workup process and we already knew that I was highly sensitized before I found out that I had cancer. Mm -hmm. And the way that I found out I had cancer was not like we were looking for it. Um, I went in to have my parathyroid hormones removed because Mm -hmm. my level was like through the roof. And even though I was taking medication to lower it, that wasn't working. So they made the decision like, you don't really need those. Let's just go in and remove them and just deal with that so we can move on. And it was while they were in removing those that the surgeon was like, this doesn't look right, took a biopsy, and we ended up finding out that it was cancer. So before that, I was starting the plasmapheresis, the IVIG, and all of that. But then when the cancer happened, we kind of had to stop. So then I had to start over again once I got Mm re-cleared and reactivated on the list. So when I started that in early 2013, I think I went through three rounds before I finally got the transplant. And then after the transplant, I did a couple more rounds. Okay. Um, And I also, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I I just wanted to ask you your experience with it. Um, Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. Let me just ask you, is plasmapheresis, did it feel different to you than dialysis? I feel like it made me, after being on dialysis for so long, so, and I know like you were on it for a long time too. So I was on it almost nine years before I got my second transplant. And I feel like it really drained me to the point where I went from kind of being able to still have a life on dialysis days too. If it's a dialysis day, like don't bother me. If it's Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I'm busy. No exceptions. Like I'm out. And I do think that the plasma phrasis and the IVIG specifically um, made me more exhausted. Like it, like I was being like sucked dry and just no, like I couldn't do anything. And that's what I told Phil, you know, like I had at John Hopkins, uh, the, I had over close to 50 treatments. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and to me, and I didn't want to put words in your mouth, but 
it was painful almost. It was like, like I was really, really tired because I had to do dialysis right afterwards. Mm -hmm. But I was like, like, it felt like it was a pulling inside me that was like making me nausea and, and mm -hmm. all, going through high flashes and everything. That's why I wanted to hear, you know, I, I, I honestly, I, I've no other people who have taken it, but they never elaborated like what you, you know, I was wanted to get how you felt uh, doing plasma phoresis also, because I never really heard anybody else say how they felt about it, you know, when they were on it. And everything. That's what yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Phil, go ahead. Do you have any questions? Because I'm you know, Yeah, I do, but I'm gonna go to a commercial first and then I'll, <laughs> I'll ask my question. All right. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to a second chance. So, uh, my question for you, Alex, is uh, you mentioned the non-compliance part and saying that it, you know, it, it, I guess you can call it a mistake, you know, because some, you know, like you, like Mr. Cook was saying earlier, you know, you, 18 years old, going to start going to college, you have a lot of things going on in your life, you know, a lot of things you kind of you put at the top of your list, and it's unintentional. You, you know, you're trying to think, yo, I need to get this done. Um, what did it take for you to come to the realization that it kind of was your fault, but not in that sense of just like, oh, I'm doing this on purpose. Like you said, it was just something that you just kind of ended up going through. Um, I pretty much knew the whole time that it was, that I was not making the right choices because eventually it got to the point where I did go away to college. I was away my first semester. And before I went away, I had, I was still seeing, you know, my pediatric nephrologist, even though I was 18. And, you know, like the, the doctors aren't stupid. They know when your labs are off and it's not because of something else that's going on. It's because they know you're not taking your meds. Like they know. And he was you know, like, he sat me down. He's like, I, and I remember him telling me, he's like, I know you're not taking your meds. And I remember sitting there thinking like, this is my opportunity to say, you're right. I'm not. How do we fix it? But I was so a ashamed and b terrified that I would like get in trouble. Even though looking back, I know that he was just trying to help me. So instead of saying, yes, you're right. I messed up. I denied it. And I was like, yes, I am. And I think that's the moment where it went from not intentional to, okay, now I'm making bad, like actually making conscious bad choices. Um, so when I did end up back on dialysis, I knew it was my fault. I just didn't want to tell anyone else that I knew it was my fault because I just wasn't ready to admit that. And Honestly, it wasn't probably until maybe a few years before I got my second transplant that I really could sit there and say, okay, I messed up. And even now when I do things like this, like it's still hard for me to admit that. Like it's embarrassing to say that. And I still feel ashamed and like guilty, but I also know that I am not that person anymore and I would never make those same mistakes. And you know, yes, ultimately I did mess up, but I was also a kid and that was a lot of responsibility and it's not an excuse. It's more like I need to not be so hard on myself because even now I'm so hard on myself. Like there's probably not a day that goes by that I take my meds and as I'm putting them in my hand to put them in my mouth, I think to myself, really, you couldn't do this. You couldn't just do this before and then you wouldn't have gone through all of that. Um, but then I also think, no, I wouldn't have gone through all of that. And I probably wouldn't be the person that I am today. So I try to, I'm not the most optimistic person. I'm very like a realist, but I, I try to find some, what did I learn from, from those mistakes that I can bring with me and not make them again? Well, I commend you for coming to the realization that, you know, it, it kind of, it was your fault because like you said, you know, even now, you know, years later, and you still like kind of don't want to say it, but then you, you know, 
because you've come to that realization, it's a little easier now to say it out loud than before. Um, I, you know, I've, I've met a number of people who who have come to the realization to themselves that they messed up when it comes to being compliant. But then they'll always add to the side, like, I can't tell nobody else this, so don't tell nobody. And I'm like, why is it so hard for you to say? You know, I mean, if you can admit that you messed up anywhere else in life, you know, it's like, why not just be, be able to admit it? Because, you know, just that's the reason for the show is to be able to give the advice and help for people and resources because, you know, it might be a kid or, or, or an adult that's out there that's dealing with these things right now that aren't really necessarily thinking about the things that we thought about going through, you know, a transplant before. And to hear somebody else say, you know, I messed up, you know, can make them come to a realization at the same time. Like, man, you start getting on back on these meds before something happens, mm-hmm. you know, um, or before they get to the point where they're like, I don't want to take these meds anymore. Because yours, you just like, I just had a whole bunch of stuff going on, you know. But then you got the other side of it where they're like, uh, you, know, you said you missed that first one. You like, I feel, I feel fine. You know, didn't take my meds. I feel great. I'm gonna go out and play some basketball or go do this and do that. And then it just continues because they're like, I don't need these meds. You know, and they keep, li- they keep, they think they're gonna keep living life without taking their medications. So they look up and they're back in that dialysis chair again, hoping that they can get back on the list for another transplant. So yeah. I definitely commend you on that for sure, Miss Cook. You got a question? Yes. Um, so, Alexandria, I want to I want to ask you, and this is what I think is the most probably to me, the most uh, inspiring thing that you did on this whole journey was, you know, you you canceled out your whole health team, you know, to, to step up like that, because I see a lot of people will stay in that situation, you know, and, and you know, my thing is always be your best advocate. You you have to speak, you know, the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So um how did that transpire what did you see that was not going on that they weren't doing and you had to cancel everybody and get a new team that's pretty amazing yeah um well to make the short version so i was i was at a unit I'd, i moved back to california from texas and when i made that transition when i made that move that's when i decided to transition into adult care even though technically i could have stayed you know with peds for like three or three more years so I moved to an adult team um, and I feel when I was a kid, obviously I didn't really make a lot of the decisions. They were obviously made, made for me, but I was always a part of the conversation. I was always in the room and my pediatric team followed me. So I had my pediatric team while living in Southern California and then I had my pediatric team when we moved to Dallas and they both followed me for a really long time. So I felt comfortable with them. When I made the move back to Southern California, I didn't have a say in any of those decisions, rightfully so, because obviously, you know, at the time my parents were like, clearly you cannot take care of yourself. So we're gonna, we're gonna make these decisions for you. And so I ended up at a facility who the medical director of that facility also happened to be my nephrologist. And, um, after getting the chest cath removed, I had a fistula and I had what is known as a buttonhole technique. Uh So where they like go in the same spot every time. And I had the same tech three days a week 
for probably at, at that point when this story starts to take place, at least four or five years. Mm, okay. And so he he could put me on the machine blindfolded. Like he he knew what the tunnel felt like. He knew if it wasn't right. He knew if my blood pressure was off, if it was actually a problem or if it was just the way I ran. And so there was like trust. So I came in one day and they're like, okay, this person's not going to take care of you anymore. We're going to start doing this like rotation, which in theory, I understood the point, right? Like maybe my tech is sick or something happens. More than one person should be able to put me on. Like I totally understood that. But they were like, yeah, so this new tech's going to put you on um, moving forward. And I was like, okay, how about she watches a few times while I get put on by the person that's been taking care of me for five years and we'll take it slow. And I also really wanted to say, no, I don't want her to put me on at all because I observe everything. Even when you think I'm not paying attention, I'm paying attention. And I knew that she was known for infiltrating other patients. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I like, no, Can we, can we can we just talk about infiltration now? People don't understand when you when you get. I just want to say this real quick. This is like a side piece. When you get infiltrated, you have to go in and get your arm done again. Okay, you have to get either androplastic, or they have to go in and create a new fistula or something. I just want to tell you that. So infiltration is the worst thing. Continue on. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I was like. A, I don't want her touching me ever. And B, if someone else is going to to take care of me, like it needs to be like a shadow situation for a few times. And they were like, yeah, no, they're just going to put you on. And I was like, well, no, like I'm saying, no, it's my, it's my body. Like he's standing right there. Can he just put me on and we can like deal with this later? And that's when my nephrologist came out and was like, you can either sit down and shut up or you cannot get your dialysis. And I was like, all right, peace out. Like I'm leaving. Right. So I, I got up and I left and I went to the emergency room and I ex- explained not the situation in full detail because I didn't want to have to go through like all that paperwork that would probably have been involved. Right. But I just, right. you know, was like, Hey, I need dialysis. And I got dialysis in the emergency room that day because I couldn't, you know, not get it. Right. Um, and again, because I had observed situations, I had watched the other nephrologists who would come in and see their patients. And I had like made mental notes like, oh, I like the way he does this or like, mm-hmm. oh, she seems nice. Right. And so I made consultation appointments with three different nephrologists like that very next week. And I asked them, I interviewed them essentially like, you know, how do you, you know, practice? Why did you become a nephrologist? You know, whatever made my decision. Um, and the reason I picked the one I ended up picking was because when I asked him why he became a nephrologist, he said he wanted to see his patients get better and maintain that relationship and not just take care of them for them to just leave. So I was like, okay, you're hired and went to a different unit, explained to him what had actually happened, you know, made the formal complaint, did all of that. Um, and then ended up at a new unit with a much better staff and another, another great tech. I was sad to leave my tech and that was like a big scary change for me to, to do that. 
Um, but then my, my tech at the new unit uh, ended up encouraging me for me to go to school and become a certified dialysis technician, which I did do. Oh, nice. nice. And it just, yeah, it ended up being better for me in so many ways. My nephrologist had done his residency and fellowship under the physician who would end up being my transplant nephrologist. Um, so it's nice that they have that open communication and I don't have to worry about like, is this person talking to this person? Um, Cause you already have to worry about enough things. You don't need to be worried about making sure that people are talking to each other. Um, so it was not easy and it was definitely, it's not like I woke up one day and was like, I'm going to get a new team. Right, it was right, forced right. and right. One, one thing I could, Yeah. One thing I could say though, is uh, it, it, it takes a lot of courage because, you know, you've been there five years, you know, this person is doing this, but you saw what could happen and you, you protected yourself because, you know, when you are in these dialysis units, you, you know, you're alert, you're seeing what's going on, you know, who's good. And you even hear the other uh, the dialysis patients say, oh, uh, that, that tech right there, Mr. So-and-so is good. She's good. Oh, I will stay away from which name we're in. And you hear this chatter. And so that just keeps you alert. And so I'm glad you took the initiative to do that because like I said, you, 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 you probably prevented a lot, even though you, you know, you stepped up and it was the unknown. You was like, look, I got to step up for myself on this. And I totally respect that because I've seen almost where patients almost want to fight a person who infiltrated their arm because they don't know, they don't understand, you know, a lot of techs don't understand what you have to go through when you get infiltrated. It's a whole nother animal. And that's what I, I, I'm, I'm trying to let everybody know. So that's what you prevented. And I'm, hey. Hands, hey, I respect that. That's all I. In know. the moment, I was probably like shaking and terrified, and like, oh my god, what am I doing? But I look back, and I'm like, it was definitely yes, the right decision. Yes. You have to be your number one best advocate. I tell people that all the time. You have to speak up. Um, uh, so, so talking about right now. So, how are you feeling and everything? How are you doing? Um. Well, I don't want to get like too into that, but I did find out in March of last year that I am in antibody mediated rejection. So I am going through um, IVIG and some other infusion treatments once a month um, to kind of just keep me stable and put that off for as long as possible. Um, it's kind of weird because I don't want to find myself at that crossroads again, but I'm like, I know that I'm already mentally preparing for it. Um, dialysis is not an option. Like I'm not doing right. that again. So I think preemptive transplant from a living donor is my, is my goal. And fortunately I have my husband who's prepared to, you know, make that amazing sacrifice for me. Um, but it's hard because I know I can do it because I've done it twice. And I actually had, I had a little mental breakdown last week where it, it was a lot and I needed to kind of like have that release. And I called a friend who's known me for a very long time. So they, they knew me the first time, they knew me the second time and now they know me now. And they, it, it's weird because I feel like my very close circle. So like my, my parents, my brother, my husband, like they are walking the walk with me. So they kind of like mirror my emotions. So if I'm being strong, they're strong. If I'm scared, they're scared. 
And it takes like someone that's kind of a little bit of a step back that can provide that perspective. And they were like, Alex, first of all, you've done this twice and you've made it out on the other end. And second of all, the person that you were when you went through this last time is so night and day from who you are today. The reasons that you find yourself in this you know, situation are not the same. Like you didn't make those same mistakes. No. Um, so you have to know that if you could make it through it, then you can definitely make it through it now, but it's still hard. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go through all of that again. Um, yeah. Living with like how, you know, when we have these kidneys and everything, we, 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 we dot our I's and we cross our T's and, and, and it's still kind of, it's like every day, we just take every day, one day at a time. And, you know, you're just appreciated and blessed to get that day. And, you know, we show gratitude because, you know, I, even every time I go get my labs, I, I have to think about that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm with you on that, like, man, I'm getting labs. And every time you get them, you know, and they, and they look good or whatever, you're, you're happy, you know, you mm -hmm. continue on because, these things, it feels like they, they kind of feel like they're lurking, like like around the corner yeah. waiting for us almost. It's it's kind of crazy to live in this kind of dichotomy, if you will, where, where you know, you're healthy and you want to stay healthy, but all these things can transpire, you know, that can, that you, where your health is in a, it's, it, almost want to say, yeah, we have transplants and everything, but we're still in a limbo situation. Exactly. I was just about to say that exact word. Yeah. And yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say my first kidney lasted seven years and 10 months. So getting to eight years with this one was like a big deal for me. That was like my goal. Was like if I make it to eight years, I will be happy. But now I'm like at eight and a half years. I'm like, I'm not ready. I know I said eight years is what I needed. But right, right. I was, that was just like my marker. Um, so it's physically, I, I feel fine. And I think the other thing that I hear from transplant recipients is whenever we're like tired or like we feel off, we have like that immediate, like, Oh my God, am I in rejection? Yeah. Whereas like a normal person is like, no, I'm just tired. And so I'm kind of walking that line where I'm like, okay, am I just a little extra tired because I'm tired or are things bad? And right. I try not, I'm trying to like not think about that, but it's very, <laughs> Not, yeah, you're, you're it's hard. right. It is a challenge. You know, we, you're talking to the choir, you know, where, you know, I, I talk to people, you know, several other people who have transplants. I talk to people with transplants all the time and we echo the same thing. You know, every time, we, you know, we, we, like I said, we're in this limbo that's kind of a different situation where we're happy, but we're also like, you know, that, that other thing could be right around. When's the, the next floor. shoe going to drop? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Phil. Uh, so my question is, because um, I, I, I understand you noted earlier that your support was important uh, in your in your journey. How has your support group kind of stayed? Has it stayed the same? Has it fluctuated like the people that have been in your circle or has it been the same people from day one to current time? Uh, both. <laughs> Um, obviously my parents are still, you know, like my biggest fans and my now husband and I actually dated when I was on dialysis waiting mm -hmm. for my second transplant. So he used to come sit with me at dialysis, rub my legs when they cramped. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so he saw me through that part of the journey and now he gets to, you know, see me on this part of the journey. Um, my best friend who I've known since kindergarten, who was there for the second transplant is still very much in my life. Um, but I feel like I'm in that place in my life where I'm more about like quality over quantity. So I find myself making my inner circle a little smaller than it used to be. But I also didn't talk about my journey then the way that I do now. I didn't want to, you know, be the sick kid. I wanted to just be the one that people knew something was wrong, yeah. but they didn't really know and they weren't going to ask. And now I will like list, I will talk to anybody that will listen because I just want them to know that they're not alone. Right. Um, so I feel like my circle has gotten smaller, but from like my, my close knit, but it's also gotten so much bigger thanks to, you know, technology and my job. I talk to patients every day and the people that I've met through becoming an advocate, um, doing things like this. So I feel like I have a giant army behind me, which I think the transplant community and especially the kidney community specifically is like this huge, but very tight knit group. Mm -hmm. Um, so both, if that makes sense. So you meant, you mentioned being an advocate and then you said that you really kind of didn't want to tell anybody. So how'd you go from, uh, not wanting to really say anything about it to kind of wanting to tell everybody about it. Cause I'm, kind of in that same boat. I, I didn't tell, I didn't really start talking about my problem until probably I got to college. You know, it's kept it to myself all the way, you know, uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, even the first year of college. I didn't tell anybody, even when I played sports, nobody knew, but like a couple of people, you know. And so then I, I was like, you kind of got to the point where I'm like, is there anybody around that listen to what I got to say? You know, I, I just, you know, because I wanted to to help people like you. I wanted to be able to to educate like Mr. Cook and be able to get information to people. Because uh, when I was a kid, like you said, I didn't know anybody that had kidney problems either. You know, I didn't know anybody going on, you know, on dialysis or having to deal with, you know, kidney failure or anything like that. So I had nobody to talk to. You know, I had people talking pretty much down to me because all they're saying is you should do this, you should do that. And I'm like, but you don't even know what I'm going through. <laughs> yeah. You just, you know, it's like they're just talking out the side of their face. I'm like, why are you trying to tell me something that you don't know about? Yeah. You know, and, and it got to the point where I was just like, maybe it's going to take people like us three to be able to make that difference and be that person that did go through this to be able to educate the people or the kids or adults who are starting to go through these things. And so that's kind of when I made that change because uh, one legacy asked me to do an interview for them for one of their uh, videos. And literally that was like the first and last time I really told my story until probably really kind of when I started with why not. And, you know, that's when it kind of picked up for me. I got a lot more comfortable, uh, you know, cause I, like you said, so social uh, media is, you know, very big. And so I was able to meet a lot of people, you know, around the country, around the world, also going to the transplant games, you know, things of that nature. The transplant games was kind of what put, you know, kind of started it for me the first year I went. And I, I talked for like a week about my story. And so I was comfortable, but not comfortable. I was comfortable to talk to people like Mr. Cook, to yourself, 
you know, because I knew that you understand where my story came from. But it's hard for me to talk to somebody that has no knowledge on end-stage renal disease, a transplant, you know, or even you know, just transplant in general. It doesn't have to be kidding, just period, being sick, battling life-threatening illness. So um, you know, what 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 made what transpired to where you just said it just kind of clicked for you and you were like, you know what, it's just it's time to tell everybody. Um I think when that moment happened at the dialysis center is when I was like, no one else is going to stand up for me. So I have to stand up for me. And then I thought, if I'm going through this, I cannot be the only one going through this. Um, and that's when I really got more involved with organizations like the National Kidney Foundation. And I was scared to tell my story. And I think I was actually more scared to tell it to other people that I knew would understand because... I didn't, I didn't want them to think like, oh, your story is not a big deal. Like, why are you complaining? And it was actually easier for me to share it with strangers that would have no idea what I was talking about. Um, like my now husband, for example, like when he and I met, I remember he wanted to make plans for a date on a Tuesday. And I was like, I can't do Tuesdays. And he was like, why not? And I was like, well, I'm on dialysis. And he's like, well, what's that? And it was like straight out the gates. I was like, all right, we're having this conversation. Right. <laughs> um, That's and- weird. Cause I, I tell you, when I was on dialysis, I, I went out a little bit, but I wouldn't get close to anybody really. Cause I didn't want anybody to have to, you know, I've, that was my challenge. And I look back like, why was I like that? You know, I didn't want anybody to get close because I didn't want them to go through what the stuff I was going. So, yeah. you know, I, I was so. working, I was working at Starbucks at the time and I, rem- and my fistula is very apparent when I'm wearing mm-hmm. short sleeves okay. and I would get questions all the time. Like, what is that? Why do you have that? What is it? And I had to get, I mean, I guess I could have been like none of your business, but yeah. I got, I got comfortable just, I feel like when you're a barista, you like part of your job is being other people's therapists and like sharing right. like your deepest secrets. Um, but I, I got to a point where that was part of my life. It did not define my life, but it was a very large part of my life. And if you couldn't handle that, totally get it. Like I could barely handle it myself, but I felt that I needed to be upfront with those people that I was letting in, like, this is what you have to deal with and you can decide whether or not you, you want to be a part of that. Thankfully, my, you know, my husband stuck around and now here we are 15 years later. But um, as far as sharing my story with other patients, I really just wanted them to know that they weren't alone. And I wanted to know that I wasn't alone Um, because at the time I didn't, other than the other people in the dialysis unit, which were like 30, 40 years older than me, I didn't have anyone to talk to. So it wasn't, it was both me wanting to be a voice for others, but also looking for someone to be like, I understand how you're feeling. And now here I am and it's my personal life, my professional life. It's pretty much, I eat, sleep, yeah, kidneys and transplant. Well, Alexandria, I'm, I'm gonna keep it real with you. You're, you're the only person I, I've met besides myself that interviewed and, and literally told people that, you know, I was non-compliant. And then just like you said, you know, it wasn't like, you know, people, some people think when I tell them that, like you said, that I just said, okay, I'm never taking medicine again. I said, no, it wasn't like that. It was like, 
I just wasn't up on my game like I should have been, like I am now. Like I'm, mm-hmm. like I can speak about it. You know, I remember, you know, when I did dialysis, you know, I did peritoneal. I used to do the manual. I had to do it five times a day. I never missed. I mean, I was like, I'm on it. And then when I did in center, I did that for uh, for five and a half years. I never missed a treatment, and I was on it like that. So we know the difference when you're on your medications, doing the things right. And you know when you're not on them. That's when, like, when I talk to the pediatrics, and I talk to them, and I go, "Man, you know when you're taking your medicine. You know when you're up on it, and you know when you're not." So you know, don't, don't you know, don't don't give me the, the BS because you know, <laughs> and because I did it. Yep. <laughs> so, that that's just where I'm coming from. But uh, I commend you to talk about that because, like, I, I talked about that also. So give you love on that. Well, before we get to our, our last question, uh, I'm going to give us a very, very small break with some announcements. Okay, so my, my last question, Ms. Cook, you have any more questions before I get No, it was great meeting you, Alexandria. I love your story. It's really, uh, it's really intriguing, and I'm in your corner. That's all I can say. Thank you. So I like to always end our show with this question is, what would you like for the audience that are watching now or in the future to take from your story today? that it's okay to make mistakes as long as you can take ownership of them and learn from them. I think that people expect people in general to like be perfect and to not mess up, but you know, life happens and you make mistakes. And I think part of the reason that it took me a while to like own up to my mistakes is I was so terrified of like getting in trouble, whatever that would look like as if losing my kidney wasn't trouble enough. But I think, you know, just knowing that, yes, you you can make mistakes, but make sure you let people know that you made those mistakes so that you can try and fix them before it's too late. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate your time. Um, if, you know, please start being proactive in your health, uh, like Alex here, like Mr. Cook, like myself. I mean, it took me a while to get there, honest. I'm not, you know, can't it's lie. It's not an overnight thing. It's right. It's, overnight it definitely thing. is not. It takes but, time. Right. But, but it starts with the realization of making the decision to do it. Right. And so once you get to that point, it's, it's a lot easier to keep it going. I always say the hardest thing to do is to start. So if you can start it. It makes it that much easier to keep going and get to to where you're trying to get to. So, 
Uh, again, Alex, I appreciate you coming on and telling your story. Uh, Mr. Cook, as always, I uh, appreciate you being on with us. And we will see you all next Sunday uh, with Keith Edwards, good friend of Mr. Cook's. And we're looking forward to that interview as well. So everybody have a great evening and God bless.